Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And I'm so excited to be joined by a very special guest today, Dr. Cynthia James. Welcome, Dr. James. Thank you. Thank you for considering having me. <laughs> I'm so excited to, to have you. I've been watching your ministry for years yeah, now. How long? Yeah, just say years. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just uh, you were so gracious to me when we talked a couple weeks ago and so supportive. And I really appreciate um, you willing to come on the podcast. For those who don't know who you are, can you just give them a little bit of background about you? All right. I'm pleased to do so. I'm currently one of several associate pastors at the Potter's House. Um, the title is a director of Christian education, although admittedly there are a number of people who are involved in Christian ed in this ministry. It's a significant concern with five campuses. Uh, prior to coming here, I served um, just, I don't know exact, maybe 37, 30, a little under 40 years as a senior pastor of three different congregations in the Church of God of Anderson, Indiana, which is a Wesleyan holiness tradition, um, also consecrated to Episcopal office uh, in the year 2000. Uh, my training, uh, formal training initially was as a psychologist, the psychology professor at a number of East Coast universities, for the PhD in psychology with the emphasis in interaction analysis, um, uh, subsequently attended seminary, uh, obtained, um, did work in the MDiv program at Pacific School of Religion uh, in Berkeley, and, but I actually matriculated from United um, Theologi Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio with the D-Men and a little bit other dipping in a few other coursework on the side. Awesome. Well, I'm a mom and I'm a wife and uh, that's my true joy and thrill. Awesome. Well, you've done a lot uh, for the kingdom and so um, elated to have you on the podcast to talk about um, something that's near and dear to my heart, uh, biblical literacy. And so um, I, I could see just from my interactions with people and reading through articles that a lot of people own Bibles, but they don't read them. Why do you think that is? 
Well, I think um, it has changed over the years. I've obviously been around a couple of decades. And uh, to my dismay, I think we have moved as a culture, a contemporary culture, to, value, to devalue or to value the word less. I think there are a lot of things that have contributed to it, and certainly this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, one might be liberalism. Um, we're living in a time where there's increasing liberalism and more distrust of documents. Some of our distrust, as we hear about things like fake news and alternative facts, certainly gives us legitimate cause to be suspicious. But I think liberalism has caused us not to see the word of God as bearing truth. Um, I, I think some of it is, um, and this is risky to say, but as we look at the Old Testament as one dispensation and the New Testament, we sometimes term, uh, use the terminology that it's another. I think there are better ways to look at it. We sometimes dismiss major portions of the Bible as being out of date. Those things are not happening. So there are no truths for us to glean there and nothing that's instructive for our present. Uh, another part I think is the fact that to really um, engage the Bible uh, as a treasure and to hold it dear, uh, we have to work. It's not just as though there are pearls that have dropped down from heaven. There are some things that we can glean right off the surface and some manna you can just pick up because it's the morning frost or dew. But I think um, what I find in my own life, so it's certainly not judgment of others, is that the, to the extent that I work and I have to do much work in this area to add historical context and to the extent that I work to add a geographical uh, geographical knowledge, that the two of them bear and weigh very heavily on the word. And so as we look at scripture and we can put it in context, then we find out it's not a dead document, but it is very much alive. I'm not a biblical scholar, scholar but I am passionate in terms of being a lover of the word. Um, so then it becomes a, a, an adventure, it becomes a journey. So there's a certain amount of effort um, that we want to use. We want to not be stymied by terminology that would cause us to dismiss what's in the Bible as being out of date. We want to be aware of uh, a kind of liberalism that would cause us to be suspect uh, of what's in the scripture. And there are probably some other things I need to think of um, to go along with that. And I'll probably think of them as, as we go through this. And I think I, I love what you said because um it, it goes into my next question about uh, why is the Bible for us still relevant in 2017? And I'm going to continue answering your old one, the other questions that come. <laughs> um, but I think when we, because that was a segue, when we look at historical background, when we look at geographical information, the relevance becomes clear. Because what we find is that the Bible is not giving us um, a, a fictional ideal world. It is symbolic. And when we understand that symbols give us uh, kind of a largely agreed upon, this is very uh, naive language, but handles and ways uh, to, to approach ideas and activities, um, then we find that the symbols in the Bible, uh, the symbolism is something that's readily transferable to today. So no, I'm not living in a day where there are concubines. But I am living in a day where there are people who have second-class citizenship. I'm not living in a day, uh, or to put it even differently, think of Nehemiah, a wonderful book that we like to use in church about how to build and how to construct. 
uh, and bring people together and be one-minded, have unison. But Nehemiah's a book is full of um, a prejudice against uh, intermarriage and um, um, just those who were on the outside. And that is so readily transferable to issues of today of how we think about immigrants and how we think about who's in and who's not and how we uh, do redistricting and how we set up both political and economic decisions. So the symbolism of the kind of thought that existed in people, because the Bible is not just a record of facts and knowledge, but there are persons to be engaged, there are situations to be immersed in. And those situations and circumstances the metaphors and the symbols of them are readily transferable to now. So I think the Bible sets up a symbolic world that is applicable now if we don't get locked into structures because our structures and titles and names for things have changed. But often the sentiments and what we would call the spirit of the letter is directly applicable. Mm -hmm. And I love what you said about that too, as far as people to be engaged throughout scripture, um, because we are looking at human behaviors and in your experience as a psychiatrist, I know that you could see the repetitive nature of people um, throughout scripture and just today as well. Um, so I have to make sure I don't take credit. I'm a psychologist, but not a psychiatrist. Okay. Um, because there's an extra level of study there that I have not done. So I wanna make sure I don't take credit for that. But I agree in what you're saying, looking at how people think, looking at, um, life is a system of interaction. Those family dynamics of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and why did not Jesus come if you love us so much? The triangles of looking at uh, Ruth and Naomi and all what happened with loss and grief in the family. Those are people, they're, they're, they're real, um, and I'm not talking about their body materially, but their sentiments, their passions. I always say, oh, I just had, this is a little extreme, but um, I'll say things like, well, I, I've just been sitting at tea all day with Ruth, or I've just been walking down the street with Noah. Um, and what I really mean is that I, I feel as though if, if I can dismiss my prejudices and open my eyes and heart, that the characters will engage me and I will engage them um, so that I really gain some perceptions that fit my everyday decision making. The Bible is relevant. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely agree. Um, how do you think we can promote biblical literacy in the church? Uh, because we live in a day where people, we have the apps on our phone, we have Bibles that are everywhere, and we get scriptures through version or apps, and usually we read a verse a day, uh, but we're not engaging the Bible as a whole. So, you know, if you read a sentence out of a book, um, you're gonna, you're not gonna have a really good assessment about what the book is about, because um, you only got a portion. And we seem to have snapshots of scripture, but not seeing it as a whole. How do you think we better engage people as the church? Well, just some suggestions, not um, a definitive or authoritative response. Uh, where I like to lay much of the responsibility is at the doorstep of those of us who had the privilege to be in pulpits and on platforms because I think uh, it's not, it is akin to what you're saying about having apps and other ways to access just a, a splice or a sound bite from scripture. But I think those of us who have uh, access to platforms have to be careful 
that if we have audiences that we think are um, deserving or desirous of entertainment, that we don't lean so heavily on the packaging until we lose much of the substance. So I think it's incumbent upon us as we teach classes, as we share in workshops, as we attend conferences, as we deliver sermons or whatever the format is, that we make sure the core is about Christ. It doesn't always have to come that way in terms of labeling, but that has to be, to me, everything has to be wrapped around who God is uh, in his son and how he's working through his son and not be apologetic or um, timid about naming the name of Jesus. Um, that's the impetus for what we do and who we are. So I, I actually think there are a lot of uh, all of our sermons, I don't want to be finger pointing, that we could um, make sure that we're intentional and deliberate about incorporating more scripture. Not just, here's my verse, and then go off and do something that's interesting. Um, <laughs> to make the text interesting to the extent that we're able to. Um, in other words, sometimes I think scripture is decoration in, in what we're doing. And it legitimizes what we're doing, but it may not be the core of what we're doing. So that's one thing. And I like to talk to ministers and ministerial groups about how in designing their worship service, how the liturgy needs to be based around the scripture. And sometimes we do that. We have a sermon, uh, a sermonic hymn or selection that kind of paves the way for the word. But how important it is, even in smaller, modest sized congregations, to try to have as much as possible, the greetings, the, the color, the, the, everything that's happening in the service to center and focus and build to the word of God that's being presented. Um, so I think it's not just in the message, but throughout our services, we can highlight this is what draws us together. This is what we explore um, to find themes and ideas uh, and that we can't find in just the one line that we're gonna draw from to help us make decisions about how to walk through life. And if I only know one little bit, I'm just acquainted with one tiny little passage, do I really know that passage? What was it intended to say? Who was it talking to? Is it applicable in my circumstance? And we all know people who just grab scriptures out and say, well, the Bible says this, then the Bible says that. And, and I can't say I'm not guilty of that um, because we grow in our understanding and I hope to be growing on that journey. Um, I will forget the question in a minute, but um, we do need to read more, pick it up more, but I, I'm big on integrating it more, scripture more into the service itself uh, and, and not being too sidetracked with other things. I think the dance is a theology of dance. I'm very big on liturgical dance and service. The drama has to make sure it's scriptural and it doesn't conflict with the message of scripture and it incorporates scriptures. Because the more people hear it, the more it's a part of our everyday life. And the other things help, you know, the prayers on our iPhone and the, you know, individual things and putting affirmations up with scriptures, all of those help. But we want it to be life for us. We want it to be, this is God in the flesh. Um, Jesus is God in the flesh. And that when we read the word, we are engaging that same Jesus who was made flesh. So he wasn't just back there in the days of ore, as it were, but he comes alive. He is this word made flesh. 
This is God's action and agency through his son. So when I open the word, whether it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, Deuteronomy, I'm looking to encounter the Messiah, not just in the New Testament. It's an appointment that I have uh, that I don't want to be late for. I'm summoned to it. So I'm going off on something else, which is more of my love for the word. So certainly in service, we need to do more. Um, we don't have the avenues we once had in school systems and in curriculums, but I think we can take the principles, and others have done this excellently, um, principles of honesty and truth and fair play from scripture and incorporate them in our whole world as much as we can, whether it's training policemen, whether it's training teachers, whether it's uh, preparing the cross, uh, crossing guard, wherever it is, we need to take content from here. And however we can work it in, I think we we need it because whether it's in the legal system, whether it's in giving the news, um, we have to have some boundaries and some principles to operate by. And if we can get common principles, it would aid communication so much. And I, I think that's so helpful, especially the piece about um, incorporating scripture throughout the sermon and not just leaving it for a specific time because people learn in different ways. It's not window dressing. It's what draws us together. This is our mm -hmm. meal and not just a Sunday meal. This is, this is what we live. This is what we eat. This is what we breathe. Um, and that's not fanaticism. I mean, the, the word is so, I'm a romantic, so I'm very passionate, but it is poetry. It is law. It is, uh, it, it invites us to, it's best understood when we're using some philosophy. We talked about history and geography. When we bring in some psychology, in my opinion, mathematics, there are mathematical type concepts of absolutism and, and uh, that we find that are parallel, I think, to mathematical paradigms. I think we find every science, every truth, it's somewhere in the word. And we don't have to become someone else. We can take our glasses, our lens, and look at the word and encounter Christ. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's so true. What would be some helpful tips uh, for studying God's word that you have gleaned through the years? You know, I don't like people speak on things and they have to be confessional first. So let me just say I should proceed it with a confession because I think the best methods are not probably not the ones I use. I, I think unless you fall in love with something, we're not going to stick with it. We're not going to be converted to it if we haven't internalized it. So just speaking for me personally, I, I am passionate. And any book I pick up, I'm going to breeze through the whole thing. Then I'm going to go read the sections that I, that really grab me um, and that I need first. And then I go back maybe and read the whole thing. So I usually read a book from cover to cover, but I've already digested the parts I like. So I admire those who are able to read through the whole Bible once a year. That's not me. I have family members that do that, and that is just great, and I love them for it. Um, um, I, but I do think the more systematic we are, the better. So it may not be a system of I'm going to go through from beginning to end once a year. There are guides to do that to make it easier. Um, but uh, if you're one of those people like me and you're feeling a certain way and you need a reading to go with that feeling and you're stuck in numbers right now, you're missing the beauty of numbers because you need to be over and wherever, Timothy. Um, so, and a lot of us have limited time. I encourage people to be, to familiarize themselves as much as possible with the stories of the Old Testament. I encourage everyone to read through the Gospels systematically, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and the Evangelist John. Read through those, know those 
um, not because the Old Testament is not relevant, but but at least know the New Covenant and as much as possible the writings of Paul. These, um, what is it, 27 books? I'm getting them mixed up, 26 books of the New Testament, um, but the whole 66 books, all of them are displaying and saying something that is cohesive and coherent about uh, the Anointed One, the promises of God uh, as realized uh, and actualized in Jesus Christ. So I read some things systematically. The New Testament, I'll read through systematically. I'll sometimes we'll read, I like stories. I might read First and Second Kings or First and Second Samuel's, but that's my joy. Um, so I feed those those uh, cravings um, for the stories and the narratives. Then um, I like poetry, so I'll enjoy reading the poetic literature. Uh, it doesn't rhyme, but it's music to my soul. <laughs> I that law is as poetic as poetry. I like the sound of words. So I enjoy reading the laws from Bible. Um, then there are times I'll read topically. Uh, right now I'm focusing on miracles, wherever they're found, Old and New Testament. Um, previously, uh, a couple years ago, I was just focusing on the parables and really went in depth in 40 parables. So there are. it's like a house with multiple entryways and everyone doesn't have to come through the front door but whatever gets us inside so we can get to the table and eat, I encourage it. Frequency, systematically, um, and probably proportionately, because if you consume too much and get inundated too soon, one might just give up and say, I can't, I'm just not getting there. And I think there, there are portions of the Bible that I read, but I don't try to share them because I don't feel equipped to. Um, and I think I'm growing in that. So I don't think one has to say, I read the whole thing and I have an understanding of the whole thing and I have all the wisdom of the Bible. That's not too likely. Um, but we can expose ourselves to portions of it that we may not feel we have insights. And the Bible is not prepared as something to be kept secret. It's not a, um, what, what are these rooms they have? These escape rooms, have you heard of that? Mm -hmm. I've been to one. You know, you, you go, I've been in one, you go and, you got to find this clue. and It's almost like they don't want you to find the things sometimes. The Bible's not written as a tease document to keep us locked out. Um, I When I find a passage and I'm tempted to say, I don't know what this is saying. I don't know what this means. This makes no sense to me. I try to look at it as if God wants to communicate to me. And so I want to pray so that my mishearing and my misreading, my, my perceptions, can come to a place where I'm open to hear what he wants to say to me, rather than see this as just too hard and these names are obscure and these places I've never been and I can't pronounce them. But help me to get beyond my, my misreading, my mishearing, my misperceptions, because I believe God wants this to be a guide for me. And that, that helps us, I think, to read something that we know someone wants to communicate and we're not angry at them, we're laying the blame on them, but we're getting ourselves prepared to receive what's there for us. So that's church and some ways to approach, systematic if you can, but if not, find your passion because it all points to Jesus. Mm -hmm. What study tools would you recommend? Uh, commentaries and... Um... I think that's the question I'm asked most often. I'm not your ideal participant in this exercise here. I recommend reading the Bible in different translations before going to commentaries. I think um, 
you know, we're told, what is it, NSV or NSRV are closest translations in the Greek. I suggest people, I like King James because it's flowery. Um, so I read that knowing that I may get a better understanding sometimes from another uh, translation. But I probably keep about nine or 10 translations on my desk. I don't keep commentaries on my desk. I keep different translations. Some I disagree with. Sometimes I'm enthralled with Eugene Peterson's work in the message. Other times I'm like, really? Come on. You know, it's just, it's just me. It doesn't make it right or wrong. It doesn't make him right or wrong or me right or wrong. It's just that's not a, a, um, that's not a pavement that I can walk down. It's not helping me. So it's just great to get uh, read amplified. Uh, I, I regret I've never had Hebrew or um, Greek. And people go, you're kidding. I go, no, I was fortunate or to my misfortune. Um, I was able to use languages from the PhD to stand for the language requirements and going to seminary. So I, but there are enough aids. Uh, one has merely to go to the library where there are accurate translations of the Greek and Hebrew. It's good if you know it. I don't think you can beat anything that you know for yourself, but that's not an excuse for us not to study. So I like to read um, some of the CEVs, the contemporary English versions. I'll read always an NSRV if I can, an Amplified. I read an NIV, but I don't really like NIV very much. I'll read Message to bring a smile to my face uh, and a chuckle because it's so human. Um, and I start with King James because I grew up on it and I can relate it to that. Um, there are some others we've discovered. I don't even remember. Uh, I don't want to give the acronym wrong. Um, there's some good news Bibles that I think are wonderful for young people, um, and I enjoy those as well. So I think those are the primary ones. But I don't. Um, and then, and then, um, just what I recommend for everyone is have an annotated Bible. Do not have a Bible without footnotes, please, um, because it opens up so much. So first thing I notice when someone brings something to me, I say, "Let me see your Bible." Because if you read the lines, you read the scripture, and you don't care enough to check the footnotes, where the writer has thought enough to give you extra information, um, it's self-sabotage. So there are some books about the Bible or secular books. I read the end notes before I read the books because there's so much buried there that's important. So always an annotated Bible should be among the list. Um, I think I started studying on a Thompson chain, and at the time I thought, oh, this is it. Uh, no, not necessarily, because I don't always like the Bibles that take me to a conclusion. I just want them to give me other references and like scriptures and kind of pray through. I think commentaries are the last resort, because I think once we read a commentary, it's very hard to be imaginative in scripture and to um, see different, see scripture from a different angle. And we hear things preached the same way over and over and over. So it must be like it. Rahab just must have been a harlot. You know she was a harlot, right? But then NIV puts in the footnote that this word, almost every NIV, I think, says Rahab could, that there's some debate about the word, translation of it. She could have been a harlot or an innkeeper. Oh, my goodness. There's miles of difference between being a harlot and an innkeeper. The woman could have been an entrepreneur living on the wall, taking people into her inn, or she could have been a lady from the red light district. And so the stereotype that's cast, 
So now just to know that they're not sure which, what the word really meant. Um, and we preach it for decades only from the perspective of she was the harlot on the wall um, is a great disservice to ourselves. So read the footnotes, read various translations. Uh, and then I look at commentaries later because that's someone who's locked into a view. Those are nice after I, after I feel like I prayed and, and have a feeling about a text. Uh, got time for an example? Yeah. I was working with the, um, I remember where he's found now in Kings, the woman who was the wife of a prophet and he was deceased, one of the sons of the prophet it's called, and the creditors are at her door and Elisha is the prophet that she goes to for help. And the more I spent time in that text, I kept feeling like, yes, she was married to a son of the prophet, but she was as much a prophet as he was. I was, I was just feeling that she was, you know, she's identifying, it's a derived identity, but she's in this thing. This is her too. This is, you know, maybe the culture had him designated, just like we know there were women who were dear followers and close disciples, but maybe not of the 12 apostles. And I was feeling this, I went to a lecture somewhere, I can't give you the details on it, but a wonderful scholar that I envy in terms of their knowledge was explaining how much of the language indicated that this woman was of equal status in terms of her husband. And I'm like, I felt that thing. I knew she was, I couldn't prove it, but I knew it. And I think because the spirit of the letter is not conditioned on whether or not we know Greek or whether or not we know Hebrew, that if we get into the word of God and pray about it, open our mind and our heart to it, we will discern things that we go to the commentaries um, I have a phone ringing, so I hope it's not disturbing. Um, that we go to the to the commentaries about maybe to either find further confirmation or to to tell us, okay, we've gone a far field here. We need to come back. And I felt that way about many characters, particularly women in scripture, who whose, whose personality and character may not be as developed. Um, we're given some of the story about them, but not as much information. And I think there are hints in the original language that I have not studied, then it's good to go to the commentary and say, well, what else can I find out about Holden that's not really brought out in the scripture? Um, so I think those are last resorts. Good to use, but last resort. Now, which ones? Um, I think expositors is good. Um, I don't even know the names of all the ones that I have. Uh, I only have two and the partial sets. But when I go to the library, I work down the whole row. So um, I'm not necessarily, there's uh, ancient Christianity that I tend to use. Um, but when I go, when, I, when I'm gonna use a commentary, I may use 10. I, I, I don't wanna tell you the ones I least like. That doesn't sound very nice. I'm not crazy about Matthew Henry, but that's my personal opinion. Um, so, I try to get some that are more um, rabbinic tradition uh, akin to that if I'm doing an Old Testament text. Um, but I'll I'll go through a good um, eight, nine, or ten commentaries after I've developed my thoughts. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like sprinkles on the icing. Otherwise, it's like canned. You know, it's um, you know how lawyers can get a canned brief. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like you go or the Cliff Notes version. Uh, and we don't want to do that because we're cheating ourselves and our audience. Yeah, that's true, and that's helpful. Uh, 
I, I, I know you mentioned, you say you spend a lot of time in the library, so. <laughs> in the library. I, I visit my office by them because I want every resource available. So I can go to the shelf and pull down 15 commentaries. I don't even know the name of all of them, but I know where the section is. And so when I've done my work, then I want to read what others say. Um, I want to read their illustrations, their examples, a lot of them. They, they don't hit me right. It doesn't stick. They're not wrong, but they just don't. But, but somewhere in there, I'll usually find some little small nut, nugget and go, that opens this up like nothing. It's not a big treatise, just a little something that slots in and fits. And all of a sudden you go, I got it. So when Ruth wakes up on the threshing floor or she wakes Boaz up and she talks to him, she leaves the script Naomi has given, and she says, I am Ruth. And I go, here is a woman in the Old Testament giving an I am statement. You know, I mean, it, it, here's she's declaring her identity long before Jesus gives his I ams. You know, we, you start finding these parallels. You don't find that in the commentary. But as I'm reading other writings, it helps to open up what was already in the scripture. So I, I commend them. I don't buy a lot of them. Um, and you can get them online. So there's a plug for online. You don't have to go to the library. That's helpful. And I admire your uh, your detail in, in study and to spend that much time um, to go through all those commentaries. I think it's helpful. Um, in now you're giving me a compliment, but that's all part of being old school because we still work with the books. <laughs> I, work, <laughs> I work better with the paper and the pen. Uh, my husband says I'm the only one in the world still has a pencil um, and a major, I call this my pencil sharpener. It's huge. No one else has a pencil sharpener, but um, I like handling the paper as well. For me, that's part of my learning, seeing it, touching it. Um, it, it engages more of my senses. But if I had a choice, I do it all online. I have a logos and I represent, I, 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 uh, recommend it to people. I think you have to be careful to get the right level because if you're not as technically savvy as I am, if you're not technically savvy as, as I am not, um, then it's easy to get a level that's just overwhelming because um, they have many levels of it. It can almost get too much information. So when I'm handling the books, I can control when I'm ready for more a little better. But that's, that's a weakness, not a strength. Uh, but I do think people should not abandon paper and books um, somewhat, yeah. I learn better. I, I have some um, books on Kindle and <laughs> I actually learn better with reading um, the, the regular books. So I had to stop buying books on Kindle because I wasn't retaining as much. That, that's the thing. I think it's memory because mm -hmm. senses have more to engage. Um, I remember the pages. I remember when I can't think of a scripture is, I know about how far back in the book it is. I know what column it's in, even if I can't remember where the text is. I know it's at the top of the page or the left side because this is what I work with. It's the tool. So that helps me for retention uh, and memory. I was going to say something else about that, but that's not at all um, to resist the wealth of information because one can cover so much more um, if they can use both methods. And I desire to be more adept than I am. What, what do you think, why do you think this issue of biblical literacy and apologetics, giving a defense for the faith, are so um, intertwined? 
Um, part of it is when, when I think of um, defending our faith, we're talking about what we believe and why we believe it, the scope of it and the meaning of it. When I think of biblical literacy, I don't just think of 66 books, but I think of how it relates, and I said this earlier, to philosophy and psychology and social systems, um, and that they can't be distinct, that to maximize our engaging of scripture, we need them married, we need them both. It's, I don't wanna misquote the scripture, but it says something like mercy and truth are met together and righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And it's kind of like we need those that, for me, that mercy would be that individual approach to the text, but truth might be more the apologetics, just to make metaphors. They're, they're met together. They need to come together. Um, I need a harmony that comes. Uh, otherwise, I think we are left with something that we cannot apply. If we go solely um, with um, just apologetics, we have something rigid, something defensible, but it may not be livable. If we, um, if we fall purely on biblical literacy, and we, what I consider biblical literacy is not just familiarity with the text, we're bringing in all these other ideas and paradigms from different disciplines. It's very much a convergent, multidisciplinary approach. We may lose our core faith because every time we lock into one interpretation versus another, we get, see the Bible is just religious, we lose the insight on the characters. We look at it as a social system, we lose the tenets of the faith. We sacrifice something. And the Bible is meant to be complex, not hard, but complex. And I think it takes both. I hope this is addressing a question for us to get to fully engage, because this is a person. This is a word made flesh and a flesh made word. Um, I shouldn't say that because that's not true. You can't reverse it that way. But this is this is the word made flesh. And for this to be, um, for this word to become incarnate, to be enfleshed in my spirit, I need to have both. Uh, let me say it hopefully a little less clumsily. Um, the word was made flesh, okay, uh, and dwelt among us from the Gospel of John. So that's Jesus. But Jesus of Nazareth is obviously not fishing with us anymore. So I still need not just the Christ, but I need that Jesus. Uh, I need that reality, that material, solid, tangible. I need to be touched. I, uh, there are things I can't do for myself. Uh, I need uh, judgment. And, and I say that in a kind way. I'm not talking about harshness. Um, I, there's an embracing that we can, we can hold ourselves, but that's not adequate. I need to be embraced by the word. I need to be uh, encouraged and built up. And in order for that word to do that for me, it has to become enfleshed in me, it has to be the word incarnate. And I think if we sacrifice um, apologetics and just have biblical literacy or the other way around, we don't get an incarnate word. Uh, we don't get a balance in us. Um, we get all hard and, and, and no uh, pliableness, or we get that which is pliable, but has no 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 firm uh, walls for us, and it has to, it has to be that. I don't feel like I'm embracing that very well. Um, so that's a powerful question, and I, I sense we'd be going that way, but I still don't have a good answer for it. Mm -hmm. 
I would, it, it, we compartmentalize the Bible too much if we just defend our faith. Um, but if I've integrated all these other things and I don't know what my core faith is and why I have it, then I'm just fluff and superficial. Um, so we miss the complexity of scripture and we sacrifice the meaning, I think, if we don't put them together. I, I definitely agree, and you answered it perfectly because that's what um, that's what I'm getting to, and as it relates to apologetics, I posted a tweet earlier that says, "I want us to reimagine apologetics," um, and I think traditionally it has looked very rigid, very um, kind of just providing principles or having knowledge to spew out arguments for people without heart. And if we're going to be effective, we need those that both and like you're talking about to really be able to defend our faith on a holistic level. Because I think about how Peter talks about we ought to give a defense, but he says with gentleness and respect. Yeah, yeah. And that comes from us. I can interview you. That's what I wanted to say. You said it perfectly. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. And that it's 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 like Peter does a lot with our behavior and how we are to treat one another then he gets to us defending the faith, but it's our behaviors that are helpful in us even engaging with people with information. Mm -hmm. The way we treat people is gonna uh, kind of dictate our effectiveness in even giving arguments, so. And it helps us not to be too hard on ourselves. I can handle my failings better when I look at the Bible, both as narrative story, as well as, uh, as principles and law. I, I need both. I need something that's going to bring me up to it, but I need something that gives me mercy and grace to get to it. Um, I wish I could say it as well as you did. That's absolutely right. I was trying to think of that text. I think it's in Luke. I don't want to just call it text wrong. Um, I should turn to Luke 4. Luke 4, I think. I have my Bible here. It's a text that says, um, um, Usually when I quote, I'm quoting from what I grew up on in King James. I don't know the verse, but I think it's around Luke 4. But it says something like, um, I want to say this day or this text is fulfilled today in your hearing. It's talking about the fulfilling of the scripture. Okay, well, someone find it when they can, but I think it's in, <laughs> in uh, Luke 4. And we want the Bible to be fulfilled when we read it, not fulfilled there or in the future but we want it to be fulfilled as we engage it, as I'm walking through it and it's walking through me, as I'm drinking it and I'm being consumed by it. And um, here it is. Oh, thank you. Luke 4 and 21. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So it, that was a reference back to uh, Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. But all of the scripture, needs to be fulfilled this day in our lives, in our ears, and as we are, are uh, engaging the scripture. So with apologetics, I don't think that happens if you don't have literacy. If you don't have something that goes beyond just a printed letter on the page, but that puts it, uh, um, when I'm thinking of what the imagery that's come to me, is like I can put ground meat on the table and potatoes and beans, but when you go to the restaurant, I mean, they got a little mint leaf up here and something else on top and a blueberry and an artichoke. Um, and that's the biblical literacy. It makes this palatable to me. It makes it attractive. 
it makes it desirous and it makes it give off an aroma that draws me to it. And I love it. I love it. Don't understand a lot of it, but I love it anyway because it loves me. I was in, um, my husband and I, years ago, we were in Italy um, and there was a priest giving us a tour through the Vatican. And someone in our group asked him, what made you convert from a Protestant to a Catholic priest? And he said, basically, I discovered the love letter. And from that time on, I remembered his phrasing. I have used it often and others have used it subsequently. But this is God's love letter to us. And I don't get the gift of this. I get the word, but I don't get God's gift in here. His gift is his son. I don't get the kiss of his son um, if I just have a defense. The Bible says this. Yes, it does. But it also says, have you seen my beloved? Tell me where he is. You know, your your word is like uh, ointment. Pour. Your name is like ointment poured for. It's, it's sweeter than kisses to my lips. I mean, that's juicy stuff. Um, and it does that for whatever age you're in, whatever. My husband is like a numbers analytical man, and he's lost in the history of the scripture. He loves it, but he reads it totally different. He doesn't even see the stuff I see. And if I saw what he saw, it'd be dry to me. But this book is what's so marvelous about it is it's not limited. And it's my heart that's limited. So I have to open up to become equipped. Who wouldn't want to read a book like this? Awesome. And your love for the word, it, 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 it comes out in, in every time you talk about the word of God and it shows like the, the passion we can have for the word of God. Uh, if we get into it, if we um, engage with it, how much we would love the word because it's, it is truly a love letter to us. It is. And, and we don't have to understand all of it. You know, it comes in pieces, but it, it beckons us. This has been my friend when I was a little girl and my mother said lights out. I didn't have siblings. Of course, I had my flashlight, you know, very stereotypically under the blanket. And I read the Proverbs because they were short in the Psalms. I didn't understand a lot of them, but I read them. Uh, and even then, I knew there was something in there that one day I really wanted. I couldn't, I could grab little phrases. So I'm not going to knock those that just have a little phrase, but keep on. They get a little more. And it has grown over the years. Um, it's not a magic book. And we don't want to use it like a genie's lamp. But it has help. And, it, and others have helped me. And we can help each other find uh, what's needed for our lives. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And I, I love how you say you don't have to understand it because I think about as you're talking, I'm thinking about if we engage it as like we engage people, there are some people we love yes. from our core and mm -hmm. we for the life of us can't understand why they do certain things. Yes. And but we still love them and engage them because we're certain we're trying to understand and we don't let we don't have to master it. It's not mastered. You know, I've mm -hmm. had some experience in life they were you know, I just thought, God is so wonderful, so great. I'm in love with God. Oh, God loves me, da, da, da. Then I had some things hit me that knocked me off kilter, right? I lost all my equilibrium. And I thought, okay, is this my God? This is the one that was wrestling with Jacob. This, that's who I just met. This is the one that, that caught uh, Zipporah, had to circumcise her husband because God was getting ready to kill him. That's, so sometimes I meet another face, and it's still God working in my life. It's still his purposes set out. I, th I can't think he's just always the one that's going to bring down fire on heads of my enemies. 
sometimes he's bringing down fire on me. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean that in a, the God zapping fire, but he's bringing discipline is what I mean by fire in my own life. Um, and it's just many sides of it. And so we always find another piece that we don't already know, that we don't understand or have pre-knowledge of. Mm-hmm. That's so helpful. And usually we ask for resources at the end of each, but I think for this episode, we want to recommend the Bible um, because there's sometimes, uh, I know throughout my seminary journey, one of the things that our, our professor, I remember Dr. King used to tell us is read the Bible because you could get so lost in studying about yeah. the Bible that you neglect the actual Bible. Absolutely. And I found myself many times during my, during my seminary journey f- neglecting the very book that I was studying. Um, That's the temptation of commentaries too, if you're preaching or teaching. Mm-hmm. So we definitely want to encourage you from this episode to read the Bible and fall in love with it so we could talk about scripture like Dr. James talks about scripture with a passion and a love for it. For those who want to get in contact with you or engage with you on social media, how would they do that? I don't even go beyond that with the phone number. Is that too risky? Might be. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, at Dr. Cynthia James. I'm on Facebook um, and Twitter and Instagram. Um, you know, pretty much the, the same. At um, the Potter's House, we do Bible study. I guess it's appropriate to mention mm-hmm. that. It's live streaming. There are a couple ways to access the site, but the old way is the easiest to me. It just go thepottershouse.org. Watch live uh, or watch online, rather. And then you can either, if it's Wednesday night at 7 o'clock Central Time, you can watch live or you can watch a Wednesday replay. Or you can catch our illustrious pastor watching live on Sunday morning or a replay. And uh, I will give an email. Um, Someone, if not a phone number, I'm pretty open. <laughs> to um, C James at tdjakes.org. C James at tdjakes.org. And I welcome hearing from you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. James. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless. And remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.